and I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, saying, Come and see. Thunder Radio with Christian J. Pento. Okay, praise the Lord, you guys, and welcome. I'm Chris Pinto. This is Noise of Thunder Radio, and today we are going to do our annual Christmas show. Praise the Lord. Now, every year, this is, this is without a doubt the most controversial show that we do throughout the year. And uh, the controversy is heating up. I have to tell you, it's gotten more and more into the mainstream where people are saying, you know, half the people on the Internet will say Merry Christmas. Uh, the other half will write that Santa is a code word for Satan. And that either this is the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ into the world, or it's some kind of pagan holiday uh, that's masquerading itself as some sort of Christian celebration. And I think like most anything else where Christianity is concerned, it all depends on who's involved. It all depends on who's who's doing it. You, you've got a preacher that gets up at the podium and he preaches the word of God. He preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ because that is what he believes. And then you have somebody else who is a, a deceiver, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And uh, his purpose is not really to communicate the message of salvation, but rather to lead people into deception and error. But these elements have always been true of the Christian faith from the very beginning just as there were sincere apostles who followed the Lord Jesus Christ, there was also Judas Iscariot. Uh, there were those who followed Jesus who, who were not sincere. In fact, uh, the scripture says that Jesus knew from the beginning those who believed not and who would also betray him. So just because there are false converts, apostates, and people who misuse the holiday— in a way that is obviously pagan, obviously ungodly, that doesn't necessarily mean that the origin of the annual celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ into the world is somehow or other of pagan origin. Doesn't mean that at all. And this has been a debate that's been heating up. I think it has intensified over the last five or 10 years or so online because of the birth of the internet in the 1990s. And now you have, there is access to information about history and the world we live in and, and, and ancient times and things like that, as well as biblical apologetics. I mean, we're really living in a very exciting time period that God has put us here. Uh, but we have access to more information than I think any other generation in history. Uh, and so the more people are doing research, there's a lot more pushback coming from uh, Christians on the Christian holiday when they're being told that it's a pagan holiday. You have more and more apologists who are standing up and saying, hey, wait a second, no, uh, this is not a pagan holiday. That is a false claim and the evidence just doesn't add up. We're going to talk about some of those claims here. But before we get into it, I want to play just a, just a sample of the kind of thing that's out there online and that you hear from people. This is uh, from a young woman who wanted to sort of communicate the idea in sort of a satirical way that Christmas is of some kind of pagan origin. So let's listen briefly to her commentary. Here it is. Well, we don't know the exact day of his birth, so the 25th of December is as good a day as any. I'm not going to argue with you about that. Sure. You're not going to argue that? No, as long as you recognize the reason that the church chose the 25th to begin with. Okay, well, tell me why they chose it then. I thought you'd never ask. December 25th was already an important date for pagan religions. 
Many of their gods were born on that date, to name a few, Horus, Mithra, Dionysus, Attis, Famous. They were all said to be born on December 25th. Some of them even had a virgin birth. Somewhere around the year 336 AD, Pope Julius I decided that Jesus' birthday was December 25th. It took the focus off of the pagan gods and it made it easier to convert pagans to Christianity. They kept a good amount of the pagan traditions and decorations and just threw Jesus' name on it. Okay, so that is a that's a typical kind of argument that you hear from people on the internet uh, that Christmas is based in paganism and that it was just something that the church implemented. Now, in this version of it, it's the Pope who comes up with December 25th. And you have this woman here making this outlandish claim that all of these pagan gods were born on December 25th. But if you go and research all of the pagan gods that she's naming there, there's no evidence that any of them, according to the ancient legends and myths, were ever born on December 25th. None none of them. I mean, virtually not even one of them uh, fits that claim. Uh, They made a documentary years ago called Zeitgeist that really freaked out a lot of people in the Christian community because the guy who made it was claiming that all these different pagan gods, including uh, uh, Buddha and Horus and so on, were all born of a virgin. They all died by crucifixion. They, then they all rose from the dead, etc. And ascribing this to all of these ancient deities. And it turned out that it was all just completely false. It was fake history. Just like we're dealing with fake news media today. Uh, we're also dealing with fake history. And we have to understand that this is an an aspect of Marxism. The communist, Karl Marx, said the rewriting of history is the first battleground. So part of the attempt at overturning the Christian world in the West is rewriting the history of Christianity. That's a key part. Now, you have, of course, the claim about the Feast of Saturnalia. They argue that really Christmas is there to replace the Feast of Saturnalia. But then you look up the Feast of Saturnalia and it went on from December 17th to the 23rd. And you say, well, wait a minute. So the 23rd is not the 25th. What are you talking about? They say, oh, well, it's close enough. You know, it's this kind of loose mishandling of history that we've been uh, seeing and hearing. Uh, Then you have the celebration of Saul Invictus, the sun god. When you begin to look into Saul Invictus, you will find that there are people who believe that Jesus either did not exist, was was a non-existent person, a person who was invented out of nothing, either that or he was just an ordinary man, and they turned Jesus into the son of God, based on this idea of the worship of Saul Invictus, okay, who was, you know, the sun god, all right? Uh, and here's, this is from a uh, an article, Why is Christmas on December 25th? Uh, the Saul Invictus Factoids by K.R. Harriman. And uh, the article says, quote, the celebration of Saul Invictus has received more support as the precedent for Christmas on the scholarly level than it seems to have received on the popular level. The story goes that the Roman emperor Aurelian instituted the festival on December 25th in 274 AD to be celebrated on that day thereafter. The problem with this particular statement is, you guessed it, there is no direct evidence for this institution in association with this day. Okay? And uh, then the author goes on to say that he's, he searched for the evidence, the historic evidence. There is no historic evidence. When you hear people making these claims about how Christmas trees are, are, are based on some ancient pagan tradition or whatever, just say, oh, can, can, can you show me that, that evidence? Can you show me the historic evidence? What, what is your, your source for that information? And you will find almost entirely that the sources uh, are materials that were produced somewhere in the last 100 to 200 years, but virtually none of them goes back to any kind of ancient source 
or ancient writing that supports the claims. I mean, none of them actually does that. Either that or they will confuse certain Roman Catholic elements that were blended into the Christmas celebration with the annual acknowledgement of the birth of Christ itself. As, as though, you know, and, and it's almost like saying that Christianity is all based on Roman Catholicism. You know, that the popes invented Jesus or something. You say, no, that's not true. The popes came later. The, the record of Jesus and the apostles is what we have in the New Testament, just like the birth of Jesus Christ. That record we have in the New Testament, that is part of the gospel record. That's not an invented history. And the reality is that you've got a record of the celebration of the birth of Christ that goes back to 199 and 200 AD. That's well documented. Okay, goes back, goes back uh, at least 74 years, 75 years before this holiday concerning Saul Invictus was instituted. And there are some historians who believe that it's, it's quite the other way around, that the Christians were not inventing a holiday uh, to cover up paganism or something, but rather the pagans seeing the rise of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire were trying to come up with some way to counter it, to, to push it back, because they didn't like the fact that so many people were converting to Christianity. It's kind of like what's going on today where you have the, the calendar, the, the A.D. and the B.C. A.D. stands for Anno Domine in the year of our Lord, referencing the birth of Christ, that it's been 2,022 years since Jesus Christ was born into the world. That's what 2022 A.D. means. A B.C. means before Christ, those years and centuries before the birth of Christ into the world. But now the pagans, because they don't like Christianity, they want to get away from Christianity, they've come up with these alternative versions of the calendar, this A.C.E. and B.C.E., after Common Era and before Common Era, because they want to get away from Christianity. And there is evidence that, yes, that's where really this whole Sol Invictus thing came in, where they, they tried to present a pagan alternative to what was already a Christian celebration. But here, let me read from an article. This is from uh, tor.com. TOR.com, and the article is called The Medieval Origins of Christmas Traditions by Michael Livingston. Now, I don't know anything about Michael Livingston. I'm just going to read this part of his article. And he says, quote, The December 25 date first appears in the writings of Sextus Julius Africanus, who lived from 160 A.D. to 240 A.D., so notice the date there. He dies in the year 240. Okay. Some folks will cite earlier passages attributed to Theophilus of Caesarea and the aforementioned Hippolytus that have the date, but textual scholarship has revealed these to be later interpolations. In other words, those are earlier writings, but it is argued that people added to those writings later on. That's the argument. So, he says, quote, Africanus believed that Christ's conception, not his birth, was the moment of reckoning for creation. So, he dated the conception to March 25th and the birth to exactly nine months later, December 25th. Now, what was the reason for this? He's not just doing it. He's doing it because it was based on an ancient Jewish tradition. And that tradition was that a prophet dies on the same day that he is conceived. That was the Jewish belief, that if you had a, a great prophet, that the day of their death was also the day of their conception. That was the thinking. Now, I don't know of anything in the scripture that tells us that, but that was a Jewish tradition. 
So if you start with March 25th as the date of the death of Christ, which they could trace because he dies during the Passover that year. And so you can trace the Passovers throughout the calendar of history. And so Sextus Julius Africanus, he was able to trace him living in the second century, third century, uh, traces the date back, comes up with March 25th as the day that Jesus died on the cross. And so then he counts nine months forward, and that brings you to December 25th. That is where the date December 25th comes from. It is not based on some pagan festival that went on. Now, the thing is, this is well-known history, and it's documented through an ancient Christian writer. There is another commentary on this in Biblical Archaeology Review, and this is from back in the year 2013. They had an article uh, where they say, December 25th, most but not all Christians celebrate the birth of Jesus on this date. It was first identified by the Christian historian Sextus Julius Africanus in 221 AD. In his five-volume treatise, Chronography, he calculated the day of the Annunciation, Jesus' conception, to be March 25th in the year 1 BC, the first day of their calendar year and 5,500 years after the creation of the world, according to his estimates, thereby resulting in Jesus' birth on December 25th of the same year. Later historians also came up with the date March 25th for the Annunciation. That's when the angel appears to Mary and tells her she's going to bring forth a child. Uh, believing that there was a connection between the date of the crucifixion, March 25th, and the Annunciation. Okay? Based on the ancient Jewish tradition that a prophet is, his death is on the same day as his conception. So this is so notice now what do we have we actually have a historic record we have the name of an ancient christian historian Sextus Julius Africanus 221 AD not a 1500 years after the fact but here in the early centuries when the christmas celebration is being practiced by early christianity Okay, you cannot call this papal Rome. Why? Because the papacy does not officially become the papacy until 606 AD. That's when the Emperor Focus, the Byzantine Emperor, calls the Bishop of Rome officially the universal priest over all the Christian churches. That was the traditional date that Calvin, Luther, and the vast majority of the reformers gave. 606 AD, that's really the birth of popery, because it's at that point that the Bishop of Rome is declared to be the head of all the Christian churches. And that's the, that's the central problem, even though there's other theological issues with Rome, the central issue is the Pope, the claimed authority of the Pope, and that you can't be saved without the Pope, that you've got to be in submission to the papacy or you can't go to heaven. And of course, that is a false and heretical doctrine. There is only one true head of the church, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Christ is the head of the church, and believers are all members of the body of Christ. That is what the New Testament very clearly communicates. And that's what true Christianity believes. Okay, so now the other issue, because uh, we're going to talk more, we're going to go to the break here in just a, a, a little bit. But before that, I want to mention the whole idea of the Christ Mass. This is the other argument. People say, oh, the Christ Mass. This is a Roman Catholic reference to the Mass where the wafer, the Eucharist, becomes the literal physical presence of Jesus Christ, and the Catholics bow down on their knees and they worship the Eucharist in Eucharistic adoration. Well, of course, uh, we reject Eucharistic adoration and we reject the doctrine of transubstantiation. 
but this is where we have to understand church history. The doctrine of transubstantiation is not part of the earlier church. It is only officially declared in the Fourth Lateran Council under Pope Innocent III, the same Pope, by the way, who brought in the Great Inquisition, the beginnings of it. But the Fourth Lateran Council, just so we understand, is 1215 A.D. 1215 A.D. So now you're talking about approximately a thousand years after the early churches were celebrating the remembrance of the birth of Christ into the world. A thousand years later is declared the doctrine of transubstantiation, which is the primary objection to the Roman Catholic Mass, because it's believed this is a false doctrine. No, Jesus Christ is not being crucified over and over again every time the communion service is, is being carried out. We reject that doctrine. All Protestants reject that doctrine. Uh, even before the Reformation, I mean, John Wycliffe, 150 years before the Reformation, rejected the doctrine of transubstantiation. He believed it was a false doctrine, and he rejected it. He also lost a lot of supporters as a result. But you cannot simply say Christ Mass and then try to impose on that the papal doctrine of transubstantiation and say, oh, this is really what you're doing when you set up a Christmas tree. No, that is simply not the case. Christians were celebrating the birth of Christ for a thousand years before the Pope and the Holy See in Rome ever officially declared that doctrine. Okay, so with that in view, we're going to go to our commercial break now. When we come back, we're going to talk more about these issues and I'm going to review some audio from a listener who sent me uh, an analysis of the Christian holiday and why it's supposedly a pagan holiday, etc. cetera. Uh, and I'm going to offer a response when we come back from the break right after this. Adullam Films presents a stunning new documentary, The True Christian History of America, exploring the Bible-based Christian origins of the early American view of freedom, tracing the principles of liberty back to England and the Great Reformation. For many years, our schools have taught that the founding of our Republic was from the Deists or the Enlightenment in France. But is that truly the case? Did the Enlightenment first declare no taxation without representation or trial by jury? Were they the champions of freedom of speech or of the press or the right to bear arms? And why did Samuel Adams declare that the reign of political Protestantism would commence just before signing the Declaration of Independence? Filmed on location in both the United States and Europe, the True Christian History of America is now available at adullamfilms.com. That's adullamfilms.com. Now available at noiseofthunderradio.com. That's noiseofthunderradio.com. Adullam Films presents an exciting new documentary, Bridge to Babylon, part three in an award-winning series on the untold history of the Bible. Dr. Jack Moorman calls it a masterful presentation of what is the single most important issue facing Christians today, the defense of the Bible as the Word of God. Why was the Bible changed in 1881? Why have so many churches abandoned biblical inerrancy? And what direction are scholars taking the scriptures today? Learn the truth in Bridge to Babylon, the sequel to A Lamp in the Dark and Tares Among the Wheat. Bridge to Babylon is now available at noiseofthunderradio.com. That's noiseofthunderradio.com. Noise of Thunder Radio. Radio. 
Okay, we are back. Praise Lord, you guys. I'm Chris Pinto. This is Noise of Thunder Radio. Today on the show, we are talking about the annual celebration of Christmas, our annual Christmas show. And uh, I'm getting ready to play some audio from a one of our listeners who, interestingly, you know, I this started, I'm thinking, what's the most... What's the most biblically minded thing I could post on our Facebook page uh, where Christmas is concerned? That that would be the least offensive. That was my thought initially. And uh, so I found a, a painting that was public domain of shepherds in the field with a little lamb and the star, uh, the star of Bethlehem shining in the sky. And then I posted the scripture from Luke chapter 2 where it says, And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Praise God. All right, so I post that scripture. And of course, uh, there are many people who favor the scripture, and there's nothing about the the, the painting that you could possibly find offensive, in my opinion. And uh, it's, uh, it, it's just a, a beautiful uh, a graphic and a, and a beautiful scripture verse describing that night where the birth of Christ was proclaimed by an angel to the shepherds watching their flocks by night. And yet I got a comment from one of our listeners who uh, said words to the effect that he was surprised that with all the research that I had done into paganism and into Roman Catholicism and so on, that I would still acknowledge what he considered to be a Roman Catholic holiday, i.e. Christmas, as though this is somehow or other a Roman Catholic holiday, which, as we've already shown, just based on, on the, the basic evidence that no, Christmas the, the annual celebration of the birth of Christ into the world is not a Catholic holiday. Now, there's a Catholic version of that holiday, just like there's an Eastern Orthodox version of the holiday. Uh, there's also the Protestant acknowledgement of the holiday. If you study Martin Luther, Martin Luther most certainly observed the Christmas celebration. But the uh, sermons, at least those that I've seen, the, the teachings that he communicated through Christmas uh, have to do with Christ himself, have to do with a focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he says uh, at one point, here's one of the quotes from Luther on the Christmas celebration. He says, quote, that there were shepherds means that no one is to hear the gospel for himself alone, but everyone is to tell it to others who are not acquainted with it. For he who believes for himself has enough and should endeavor to bring others to such faith and knowledge, so that one may be a shepherd of the other, to wait upon and lead him into the pasture of the gospel of this world during the nighttime of this earthly life. Okay. He says, Thus Christ has always been the life and light, even before his birth, from the beginning, and will ever remain so to the end. He shines at all times in all creatures, in the Holy Scriptures, through his saints, prophets, and ministers, in his word and works. And he has never ceased to shine. But in whatever place he has shown, there was great darkness, and the darkness apprehended him not. Okay? Now, when he makes reference here to in his word and works... Uh, that is an ancient teaching. We talk about that in uh, our film, The True Christian History of America. The phrase laws of nature and of nature's God is essentially the same as God in his word and his works. The work of God is the creation itself. The creation. The Bible says that God's judgments are seen in all the earth. The invisible things of God are clearly seen through the things that are made. So this is what Luther is referring to here. He's not saying, well, God is in all things in some kind of a pagan way. No, but that God, 
that we learn about God. We can witness the judgments of God and the wisdom of God through nature itself from a biblical perspective. So God is known through the work of creation, and he's also known through his word, divine revelation in the Bible. And God's word is what brings that perfect clarity uh, to comprehending God's judgments in the earth, in the creation itself. So Luther says, quote, through the gospel, this light is brought to us, not from a distance, nor do we need to go far to obtain it. It is very near us and shines in our hearts. Praise the Lord. So a very Christ-centered celebration of Christmas. That would be, of course, the Protestant view. Uh, and it wouldn't be full of all this superstitious kind of stuff. And, you know, the, the elements concerning Santa Claus and the elves and the North Pole and all of that. That's a whole nother thing. But, but nobody's really defending that. Nobody's, nobody who defends the history of the Christmas celebration or the annual observance of remembering the birth of Christ into the world, nobody's really, no Christians anyway, are really trying to defend Santa Claus, the elves, the North Pole, and all this other kind of stuff. Uh, in fact, there's a, a video clip I'm going to play a little bit of here in a second from uh, John MacArthur and what he had to say about the annual celebration of Christmas. There's a very, very brief clip I'm going to play from MacArthur himself. Here it is. Listen. Christmas is kind of an interesting uh, experience for Christians. It's a very bizarre combination. We have been celebrating uh, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Singularly tonight, you have not heard jingle bells by design. We, we have come together as Christians do to celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ not a calorically challenged man in a red suit who is a fantasy of people's imagination. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to be a, a downer here. I, I understand that um, Santa Claus is a kind of harmless myth, kind of a delightful fantasy. Uh, there's some value in the traditions that have come around the figure of Santa Claus, but he basically is, is a fantasy, not true, a lie. There are no flying reindeer, there is no sleigh, he doesn't come down your chimney, he doesn't leave you anything. This bizarre kind of fantasy has somehow laid itself on top of the celebration of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the most profound the most profound event that ever happened in human history when God came in and he has to share it with this crazy, non-existent guy named Santa Claus. But, but that lie has stuck. And I, I will admit, it, it's, in a sense, it's harmless. Uh, children enjoy fantasies and you can get a little leverage out of it by trying to get them to be good. But, it, but it's just not true. I don't think that the lie about Santa Claus does a whole lot of damage. But I will say our society is engulfed in a, in a group of lies that do a tremendous amount of damage. The most important thing in life is not what you possess. The most important thing in life is what you believe. It's what you believe. What you possess will not bring you to God. What you possess will not take you to heaven. What you possess will not bring you forgiveness of sin and salvation. Only what you believe will. And the Bible says, only if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will you have eternal life. It's all summed up really in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, and that's very important to know, that the God who is absolutely holy, who is in charge of everything, sovereign over everything, the God who gave us his law, the God who demands righteousness, the God who knows we're sinful, the God who compels us to believe, 
so that death is a glorious transition into heaven. The God who has designed for us to give him glory forever, that God loves us. He loves the world. He loves sinners like us. And he has sent his son. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's the good news. And that's why Christmas is such an incredible event. How in the world, how in the world could we deflect our thoughts from the profound reality of the coming of the Savior to some fantasy character? Sounds to me like a strategy of the kingdom of darkness. The message of Christmas is the message of hope, forgiveness of sin, salvation, eternal life in Jesus Christ. And you've heard that a hundred ways tonight in the music. And I trust that the Lord will open your heart to embrace the only Savior, our Lord Jesus. Okay, praise the Lord. So that is uh, John MacArthur, his take on Christmas. And that's from a number of years ago. I wanted to go ahead and play that because I thought, even though I don't always agree with John MacArthur, don't send me an email and say, well, MacArthur said this. Oh, yes, I understand. Okay. But on this issue, uh, I think he did a great job of really finding what I think is, is the appropriate middle ground here. Uh, we have to be careful. You know, there, I, I had somebody communicate to me a short time ago that the, the role of Protestantism supposedly was to reform the church away from everything that is Catholic or Roman Catholic, that that was what they communicated. And there was a time, I think, maybe when I thought that was the case. Uh, but I would encourage people, I would encourage anybody, really, go read the writings of the original Protestants. Read the writings of the Reformers. Read J.A. Wiley's history of Protestantism. He refers to Protestantism as revived Christianity. It's not really anti-Catholicism. That's not what it is. It's a the restoring of the faith once for all delivered unto the saints by turning back to the pages of Holy Scripture, by going back to the Bible. It's not about rejecting everything that the popes and the cardinals and so on came up with. In fact, Wiley calls Protestantism revived Christianity. It's really Christianity getting away from the corruptions that are entered in. But And of course, yes, that, that involves getting away from a lot of the Roman Catholic superstitions that were entered in over the centuries of time. No question about that. But most of those problems are doctrinal problems. Most of them are theological. Things like transubstantiation, purgatory, the authority of the Pope, uh, the, the, the way that the sacraments are presented, sacramental salvation, etc., those are the real problems. Prayers to Mary, these, these are the real problems. Uh, having an annual celebration where we acknowledge the birth of Jesus Christ into the world, that's something that has been celebrated by Christians since long before the papacy was ever formed, long before a thousand years, as we talked about, before the modern Catholic Mass was developed which again, Fourth Lateran Council, that's where they came up with transubstantiation. So we have to bear these things in mind. You, you can't simply dismiss all of church history and say all of church history was Catholic. Part of the problem is that the Catholic Church tries to claim credit for everything in the history of Christianity before Martin Luther. That's part of the problem. That's simply not an accurate view of history. Uh, one of the arguments is that the Catholic Church supposedly ordained Sunday as the day that Christians would meet 
And there's some declaration from the popes where they, they ordain Sunday as the new Sabbath, supposedly. But that's not why we meet on Sunday. We meet on Sunday because that's the first of the week, the first day of the week. And that's the day that believers, New Testament believers met in the book of Acts of the Apostles. That's what we read there. That's the reason we meet. Not because there was some papal declaration that showed up hundreds of years later. And this is part of the problem. Uh, just because the popes and the Holy See and that kind of thing made certain declarations, that doesn't mean that that is where all of the teachings and the traditions come from. We have to be careful about that. And that takes a, a careful study of both history and the Bible. And not everybody is willing to do that careful study. Uh, now, let's. I want to go over now and shift over to this... Uh, uh, the person who sent me his commentary, he sent me a, an, a link to an audio of him reading The Origins of Christmas, okay? And he admits on the page, and this is the speaker from Dwayne Lynn, Dwayne Lynn, who I think is a nice person and appears to be a sincere brother in the Lord. I'm going to assume that he is for the time being. There's no reason to assume otherwise, but I do believe he has gotten hold of some bad history. That's my view. Now, he says uh, at one point, just reading the the text on his uh, audio site where he, where he says, here are the origins of Christmas. Okay. And then he says he's reading from the booklet, the origins of Christ mass by G V Rene Graucott, G R O W C O T T. GV, G is in George, V is in Victor, and then Rene, R E N E, uh, and then Grocott or Graucott, G R O W C O T T. So that's what he's reading from. He's reading from this publication that somebody named Graucott published. Well, I did some looking into this. I wasn't really able to find a whole lot on this uh, G. V. Graucott. I did find uh, at antipas.org the uh, antipas.org which says it is an organization upholding the understanding of the scripture as taught by the apostles and by the pioneer Christadelphians. Christadelphians. It's been a while since I've heard of the Christadelphians. I remember studying them from years ago. But they have posted the origins of Christmas, and they've got the sections of it here. The problem is, if you read this, and, and I took the time to read through it, they're not really making, the, the author of this is not really making references to any ancient writings from early church fathers. I don't, and what I, if they are out there, I would love to see them. I'd love to see early church fathers, for example, uh, who said, yes, the, uh, the, the, the Christians now have adopted the Feast of Saturnalia and they're calling it Christmas, etc. If there's some writings, let's say, within the first 500 years of church history, where we have warnings of this. I think that would be very significant. If you have any kind of evidence like that, anyone, uh, by all means, send it to us. I'd love to see it. Remember, part of the reason why we reject the false gospels, like the gospel of Judas and the gospel of Thomas and the gospel of Mary Magdalene, is because we have the writings of Irenaeus, an early church father, who warned us about these Gnostic gospels, that they're false that they're fabrications invented from the imaginations of these Gnostic heretics. So there's a record when these false gospels were written. 
You see, as the Bible says, God left not himself without witness. There have been witnesses in every century for the gospel and for Christianity and for God's truth upon the earth. So God does not leave himself without witness. If something as significant as the annual celebration of the birth of Christ came about and it was all based in paganism, you would have early Christian writers within the first five, six, seven hundred years would be warning about this. And they, they would be saying that the Christians now have adopted Saturnalia or they've adopted Sol Invictus or they've adopted the, the practices of the pagans and they're dressing up trees with gold and silver and, and they're worshiping Christ and supposedly, but it's not really Christ. It's all pagan, etc. You would have those kind of warnings. You wouldn't have to wait more than a thousand years before somebody said something. That's just not reasonable. It's just not reasonable in my view. Now, maybe that evidence is out there. If it's out there, I would love to see it. And if, if somebody can present that, then certainly I would listen to it. Uh, I would take the time. Uh, but when I'm reading through this, just the text that was presented of the uh, reading from Dwayne Lynn, there's nothing in the text that presents any real ancient evidence. Just assertions are being made, but there's no real proof to back them up. Now, let me tell you what else I had an issue with. I'm going to play just a little bit of the dialogue here, and then I have to comment on this because it's very, very important. Uh, and this is what... Um, Dwayne Lynn, he's offering his own commentary on how the Catholic Church has corrupted different things through its influence. Listen to what he says. He's, he talks about St. Patrick of Ireland. This, I think, is very important. Listen. From the time when the mother of harlots held undisputed sway over times and seasons, and the bodies and souls of men. All right, so this is a, what he's repeating there is, is almost like a common Catholic fable. The idea that before the Reformation, nobody ever questioned Roman Catholicism. When he says undisputed sway over times and seasons, etc., that's simply not true. That's never been the case. The Eastern Orthodox Church has always resisted Rome. Uh, then you have the Waldenses, the Albigenses, the groups in the north of Italy and the south of France, with under many other names that were never part of the Roman system and resisted Rome. Uh, Rome was resisted through Magna Carta. If you study the real history of Magna Carta, then the Hussite Wars again, the, uh, the Hussites, the followers of John Hus. I mean, this whole idea of undisputed Roman authority prior to Martin Luther, is simply not real history. Okay, let's keep listing. And then many of them were borrowed by the Catholic Church from paganism. Many, of course, are now only unfamiliar names to most of us. Candlemas, Epiphany, St. Stephen's, Michael Mass, All Saints, Whit Whitsuntide, Shrove Tuesday, Ash Wednesday, Plow Monday, Twelfth Night, and scores of others. But some still remain prominent as grim relics of an age of gross and incredible superstition. St. Patrick converted Ireland to Catholicism and immortalized the shamrock by using it to demonstrate the triple unity of the Trinity. Okay, so I'm going to stop it there. By all means, and, and I'm doing, just so you know, a little bit of editing. By the way, I also edited John MacArthur's speech, just so you know, to shorten it. You guys want to listen to the whole thing, go listen to the whole thing. I'm also editing down Dwayne Lynn's presentation here to tighten it. Uh, but but I'm not presenting anything out of context, just so you understand. But I wanted to get to the point where he talks about St. Patrick 
of Ireland, because this is a very, very important point, especially for the Ulster Protestants in Northern Ireland even today. And it really characterizes, in my opinion, the problem with this whole argument against Christmas. Because notice, he, it, it, the argument against the Christmas celebration is that it's a Roman Catholic celebration. And that seems to be Dwayne Lynn's primary argument. But he's basing it on Catholic mythology, Roman Catholic mythology that the Catholic Church has promoted for centuries. And certainly in opposition to the Great Reformation, Rome has claimed credit for virtually everything. Remember, they claim credit for the Apostle Peter. They claim Peter was the first pope. That when Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I build my church, well, Peter then was the first pope, and all the popes have been the successors of St. Peter, they say. Does that mean that Peter himself was somehow or other an invention of Rome? No, not at all. There is the real biblical Peter who was truly an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there is a counterfeit version of Peter that has been invented by Rome. We could say the same thing about Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's the biblical Mary, and then there is the Catholic Mary that is largely mythological, that they've invented. Okay, the same can be said for St. Patrick. Now, the first thing to remember about St. Patrick, and everybody knows St. Patrick's Day, that is celebrated and everybody wears green, right? And then they have the St. Patrick's Day parade. It is typically seen as a Catholic celebration here in the United States. But this is another example of the Catholic Church hijacking a Christian man in history and turning him into a Catholic. But And what's really odd, what's very, very strange about uh, so-called St. Patrick is that he's not been canonized by the Roman Catholic Church. So officially, he's not a Roman Catholic saint. And you can go look that up and read about it. But no, Patrick did not bring Roman Catholicism to Ireland. And this is something that I've, I've been learning about for years. Uh, you've got a number of ministers out there who have talked about this and they argue that Rome is really covering up the truth about Patrick, that Patrick was really a Bible-believing Christian man. The Protestants in Ulster argue that really he was a Protestant because Protestantism is based on the Bible. Okay? There's a great article on this that you can find from Ligonier Ministries, uh, R.C. Sproul's ministry. They published, published an article some time ago that says, quote, who was St. Patrick and should Christians celebrate St. Patrick's Day? Okay, that's the article. And uh, they go on and they talk about how he, he was not Irish. He was, in fact, uh, from he was born in 385 A.D. in Roman Britannia in the modern day town of Dumberton, Scotland. Now, the real story of St. Patrick, as he's called, is that he was kidnapped at an early, early age. He's from uh, Scotland originally, was kidnapped from there, taken to Ireland, kept as a slave for a number of years. He was kidnapped as a teenager, kept as a slave, I think, for six or seven years. And at one point he escaped and he made it back home. Well, along the way, he became a very, very convicted Christian. Uh, and he was so convicted by his Christian faith that he was determined to return to Ireland now as a free man and a minister of Christ and to convert the Irish barbarians who had been his slave owners to convert them to Christianity, not to convert them to Roman Catholicism. Romanism did not enter into Ireland until centuries later. And there's a number of articles on this. In fact, this is one of the, the uh, main arguments that are being made in Northern Ireland by the Irish Protestants there. The, the same people who were involved with the late Dr. Ian Paisley also argue that the real Patrick 
was a Bible-believing Christian man, basically a Protestant long before the Protestant Reformation. Okay? In fact, that's the gist of the argument that's being made on the Ligonier website. And here's what, uh, here's what the article says at one point. It says, What casts a far greater shadow than his monument, however, is St. Patrick's Day. And that day in the middle of March raises a significant question. Should Christians celebrate St. Patrick's Day? Kind of like celebrating Christmas, right? Should Christians celebrate St. Patrick's Day? If you do, you might want to consider wearing orange. Orange? Here's why. After 1798, the color of green was closely associated with Roman Catholicism and orange with Protestantism. After William of Orange, the Protestant king. The holiday is certainly not to be used as a means for excessive partying and celebration, but wearing orange and trying to tell people who St. Patrick really was might be a good way to celebrate. Okay, so in other words, they're arguing at Ligonier Ministry that really Patrick was much more Protestant than he was Catholic. And his writings, if you go and you, you study his writings, uh, those who have done an analysis of him say he's quoting the scriptures over and over and over again. There's nothing about the Pope. There's nothing about purgatory. There's nothing about Roman Catholicism at all. Patrick was a Christian man, and he went to convert the Irish to Christianity based on the Bible or what we today call Protestantism. Okay. And going back to this Ligonier article, it says, quote, Patrick would become, would come to be known as the apostle of Ireland. He planted churches, the first one likely at a place called Saul in Northern Ireland, a bit inland from the coast, just below Belfast. Patrick planted more churches as he crisscrossed Ireland. The challenge with Patrick is sifting through the legend. Take the shamrock, for instance. Some biographers claim definitively that Patrick used the shamrock as an object lesson to teach pagans about the Trinity, that God is one in essence and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no evidence, however, for such a claim. Okay? No evidence. So we just heard Dwayne Lynn communicating that, and he's saying, you know... Uh, St. Patrick went to Ireland to bring Roman Catholicism there and introduce the shamrock and all this other kind of stuff. But the reality is there's no history to support that idea. That's Roman Catholic fantasy and mythology. Uh, in fact, there's a, a series of articles that I recommend by somebody that uh, I've quoted before Professor Arthur Noble, those of you who remember back when the website, the European Institute of Protestant Studies, EIPS, uh, through Dr. Ian Paisley, when that website was still up and running, uh, Professor Arthur Noble was one of the contributors to that site. And he has a series of writings uh, called Early History and Settlement, Understanding Northern Ireland, a Part of the United Kingdom by Professor Arthur Noble. Okay, so here is part of what Arthur Noble says. He says at one point, he says, quote, the Vatican's historical lie, the Vatican's historical lie, quote, the so-called patron saint of Ireland, Patrick, was not Irish at all. He was British. He was born about the year 389 A.D. of a middle-class landed proprietor in an area of the Severn where the present-day counties of Glamorganshire and Monmouthshire lie. His confession, contained in the Book of Armagh about 807 A.D., reveals that when about 16, he was in fact abducted by a band of Irish marauders. Then it goes on, talks about his enslavement. He returns. He's going to... He goes back to witness to them. Uh, and he says, here's what he says. He says, quote, the Roman Catholic hierarchy, 
likes to call him the Apostle of Ireland. But Christianity had been known in Ireland for at least 200 years before he landed on its shores. The ancient, unadulterated Christian faith of the island's inhabitants, that which replaced heathenism, spread and flourished through Patrick's ministry and gained for the island the reputation of being the land of saints and scholars. But this faith was entirely different from that which Rome now holds. Indeed, a book ascribed even by Romanist to Patrick, De Tribus Habitaculus, makes no reference whatsoever to false doctrines such as purgatory. In fact, the remnants of the pure and primitive Christianity of Ireland survived until the reign of Henry II of England. Okay, and that's Henry II in the 12th century. So then Professor Noble says it was only then that the Pope made a grant of Ireland to the Anglo-Norman sovereign, not as a territory already under the papal see, but as one on which no solicitation on the part of Rome could hitherto force subjection to the Pope. In 1152, 700 years after Patrick, four archbishops received the pallium to wear, signifying for the first time their submission to the See of Rome. Okay, so this is what Professor Noble is communicating about St. Patrick, uh, or Patrick, if you will. Um, he's not a Roman Catholic saint. He's never been canonized. And the faith that he brought to, and, and really, according to Professor Noble, Christianity was already there, but Patrick certainly had a very strong influence in, in terms of spreading Christian doctrine throughout Ireland. And so he says it's 700 years later before the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church take control of Ireland and bring it in submission to the Holy See of Rome. And so this is in 1152. He says, quote, in that year, the foreign religion of Roman Catholicism spiritually invaded Ireland and subsequently held undisturbed rule in the greater part of the island for almost 800 years. And then he goes on to say those who falsely label Protestantism as the invader imposed from England would do well to remember that the Reformation was a return to the Christianity of Patrick's time. That's the argument. See, this is where history becomes very, very challenging with all of its twists and turns. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, one of the things that Duane had said to me before, he said, well, with all of your study of history, I'm surprised that you don't reject the Christmas holiday. Well, it's because I've studied history. It's because I've studied the real history surrounding the Christmas holiday. And I've chased down a lot of these arguments of paganism and they just don't add up when you seek them out. There's no clear evidence. And the big problem with the Christmas is pagan accusation and going around condemning everyone who chooses to celebrate the birth of Christ and remembering the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ and the great gift that God gave to mankind so that we could receive the forgiveness of sins and salvation by faith in him. The problem is, is that if, you, if you're doing that and if the information you're communicating is simply not accurate, you can become guilty of making false accusation against believers in Christ. And not just believers today, but believers for the last 1,800 years who have been celebrating the birth of our Lord and Savior into the world, and you're denouncing them all as having taken part in some kind of pagan ritual, when in fact, that's almost certainly not the case. Now, we're not going to try to defend things like Santa Claus and the elves and all that kind of stuff, but then nobody's really trying to defend that. That's, uh, you know, John MacArthur referred to it as, as kind of a harmless fable, 
that is uh, taught to the kids. Uh, of course, we agree that our children should be taught the truth about why we celebrate the Christmas holiday, that it's to remember the great love that God had for us, that God so loved the world, and he loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten son, so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is the great message and reminder of the Christmas holiday, in our view. That's how we see it. But as the Apostle Paul said to the early church, one man believes one day to be above another, another man believes all days are alike. He that regardeth the day unto the Lord, he doth regard it, and he that does not regard the day unto the Lord, he does not regard it. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. That's what we believe, brothers and sisters. All right. And so that is going to do it for us today. That is our show. We'll stop it there. But we will be back next time as the Lord leads us. Until then, God bless you guys. I'm Chris Pinto, and you've been listening to Noise of Thunder Radio. Noise of Thunder Radio.